Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards and as you would have seen in the episode description, we have a special guest this episode. That's Lead Portfolio Manager, Deputy CIO and Executive Director at Hyperion, Jason Orthman. Jason, welcome back to the Invest It Best podcast. Thanks, Ted. Hi, hi all. Now, Jason, regular listeners may remember we had a discussion back in late 2021, I believe. For those not familiar, Jason is lead portfolio manager at Hyperion across all three of their equity strategies. That's Aussie equities, small caps, and, and the global equities. And interestingly, as I called out last time, Jason started his career at Wilson's back in 2002 and our research team, not long after, moved over to the buy side in 2008 when he joined Hyperion. And now, along with Mark Arnold, Jason and Mark have the vast majority of influence in managing portfolios at Hyperion. And Jason, that's what I'm keen to discuss today about how you're influencing portfolio. Let's jump straight into it. Jason, I came across a line on your website that I was keen to kick off the discussion with, and that is Hyperion seeks to exploit two inefficiencies, and that's time arbitrage and the quality anomaly. So, Jason, can you please share with us what they both mean and how you yeah, exploit sure. these? Yeah, sure. Happy to. And, I mean, if you go back to um, Hyperion's inception in, in 1996, so for over 25 years now, we've been exploiting some key inefficiencies in the market and, and they've continued to persist. And, and the main one really is around that time arbitrage. And that's essentially taking a long-term view in, in a short-term world. And in, and in fact, that inefficiency has actually got larger and larger over time with the trend to, to passive. Uh, markets have got more volatile, more short term. And so what we're really trying to do is take advantage of non-fundamental share price moves by taking a long-term view and, and comparing the share price to a risk-adjusted um, intrinsic value in, in 10 years' time. And so uh, what that really means is there's a small group of special businesses that have They've got a strong value proposition, strong sustainable competitive advantage, strong organic growth profiles. They can actually continue to grow at levels higher and longer than, than most market participants expect. If we assume a business is going to grow its sales and earnings at 15% per annum for 10 years, as an example, we'll forecast 15% per annum. Whereas the market, because they tend to be more focused on a 12-month price target, the next quarterly result, the next half-year result, the next full-year result, they don't tend to put as much emphasis on on year numbers, 10-year numbers as, as one-year numbers. So if we're forecasting 15% per annum, the market might do that for one year, the next year forecast 13%, then 11%, then maybe 8%. And then from year five on, they might actually just have a terminal sales and earnings per share growth of, of, of 5%. So you can see as you move into the outer years of expect expectations, some big positive jaws 
um, open up, and you tend to have these um, earnings upgrades. And, and that doesn't exist for for all all companies, but certainly those strong dominant companies can can grow earnings um, for for longer than um, people um, expect. And then, really, if you look at the quality anomaly, you know that's um, arguably um, a, a sub theme of 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 time arbitrage because you're looking at companies that have been misidentified and. And people don't realise that this business is actually a quality structural growth growth business. And by looking out a number of years, you might actually identify that this is actually going to be the next market leading business, the next blue chip. And and why it's difficult for the market to identify is there might be something new, something innovative, something disruptive. And there's been no databases or, or business models built around it. So you really need to build that up from um, the ground up. And then the financials mightn't give you an indication yet yet either. Maybe they're early in their lifespan. Maybe they're investing heavily back into R&D, back into distribution. But over the next few years, the earnings growth will really be there. And so that inefficiency, the quality anomaly is, is rarer than, than that um, time arbitrage. But um, clearly, if you can get those inflection points, that can actually enhance your returns. And, and Hyperion's been lucky enough to identify things like realestate.com, .au, um, WiseTech, or, or Tesla Offshore, or, or Amazon, before these businesses became, you know, obvious um, blue chips in, in other people's portfolios. I, I like a line that you said there early on in your answer about on-time arbitrage, making a long-term view on, on a short-term world. But Jason, when you're looking at so far, say 10 years, if you don't look too much on, say, the one-year numbers, where do you focus to get conviction that the long-term plan is is still on track? And it's still a quality company. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, we're focused on getting our earnings per share broadly right, right in um, ten years' time, and um, particularly at, at the portfolio level. So you tend to have some companies actually do um, far better than you expect, and, and some don't meet your expectations. But um, at the terminal level, ten years out, and at the at the portfolio level, you know we've been been broadly accurate, and and clearly you need signpost journey. Result seasons are good signposts, but to your point, they're short periods of time, and and earnings can fluctuate, and so you don't want to read too much into into short term results. Like nothing's linear; it's not linear in in business. So we need to to bear that in mind. So what we're really looking for is to track the underlying fundamentals or those earnings drivers and assumptions that underpin our ten year earnings per share forecast. So. If you look at a SaaS or software as a service business, as an example, you might be tracking MAUs or, or monthly actives or having a look at ARPU or average revenue per, per user. And so if your monthly actives are increasing at a high rate or increasing more um, at rates higher than the peers, and then clearly that company is growing into a large um, addressable market and, and most likely um, taking market share. And we can track that versus our expectations. And same with um, average revenue per user. If that's growing at, at, at double-digit rates, that's an indication that this company's got strong pricing power and they've got a really innovative product set. And again, if that's growing higher than their peers, it's probably indicating there's something special within those businesses and they're capturing more value than their peers. So looking at those underlying assumptions is important. And that's really going back to um, the qualitative elements or, or first principles. So outside results, we have a research template which is all our qualitative work. And we look to update that every two to three months. And we have a business quality score produced for a business. 
and we're really trying to identify if there's a, a change in the investment thesis. So clearly we, we intend to hold these businesses for 10 or 20 years unless the investment thesis breaks. Um, and that's when we need to reduce that weight and ultimately exit. So having a look at those signposts, but balancing it out with a, a long-term view and being patient for some of these special businesses. Okay. Having an investment thesis that looks out over 10, perhaps even 20 years is fascinating. So let's maybe zoom in on a mega trend of artificial intelligence, which I, I know Hyperion is very active in. Maybe if you can share with listeners, which businesses do you think will be winners in AI in, say, 10 or 20 years? Well, when we think about AI or um, ML with machine learning, we really do believe it's a paradigm shift. And there's been a, a number of those over time. Clearly, the, the move to the internet was important for equity markets, the development of the smartphone, the shift to cloud, of soft, software. They're all paradigm shifts that created exceptional value for astute market participants. And we think AI machine learning has is, is just started and is going to be incredibly important over the next decade. But what may be different um, this time is when you have these shifts, often the companies emerge from small players and become large um, incumbent players. And your blue chips uh, grow up in these environments. What we're seeing this time is we actually think it's your large, modern incumbent players that will actually benefit from AI and, and machine learning. And in a way, that's where Hyperion is more comfortable because if you move into the startup area, into venture capital, there's a different skill set required and you are at risk of having a permanent loss of capital. Whereas if you can purchase these dominant businesses that can sub supplement their earnings and revenue streams through AI and machine learning, you're in a quite an attractive spot. And when we actually think about it, we don't believe it's the actual models, the actual algorithms that will actually make the difference. We believe they'll be commoditized. And you've seen that with GPT. When that emerged, there was a lot of hype and a lot of excitement. But within months, other credible LLMs or large language models emerged that are equal to ChatGPT. So it's really going to come down, in our view, to who's got the quality of the data and who's got the most data. And that's really your incumbent platforms who have got a lot of usage, which the second, third, fourth, fifth players don't have. And obviously the quality needs to be there as well because you take some institutions like financial institutions, they've got a lot of data, but they're built on legacy infrastructure. They've got a lot of IT debt. They may not actually emerge. You take a number of modern players, whether it's Tesla, whether it's an Amazon, whether it's a Meta, whether it's an Alphabet, whether it's a, a Salesforce, they have got huge usage, huge insights, and they're built on, on modern stacks. So this time around, we actually think it's the large incumbent players that are going to benefit in an outsized way in, in AI and, and ML. Yeah, fascinating. And to build on the, the paradigm shift that I think you mentioned at the start of your answer, which hasn't been mentioned so far, is NVIDIA who have, have done well. So there's... On one one hand, you, it's the access to the data, which you know, can't be commoditized. But should investors be looking at the hardware players too that are, are leveraged into AI and, and machine learning too? We think it'll play out in a number of phases over the next 10 years. The hardware side or monetizing the chips is, is obviously the first stage, potentially moving to cloud, then into applications, then finally to the edge. But we've seen NVIDIA produce a couple of really strong quarters now. And NVIDIA is 
on our watch list on our bench and and so we have active coverage active research templates active financial models and and we'd argue in the video is probably a, a top 50 business in the world it's not in in our portfolio so it's not a not a top 20 business and the reason we'd say that is the quality and predictability although high isn't as high as our existing portfolio and for example you've seen NVIDIA have earning surges over time. You know, they were leveraged into the crypto boom. They were leveraged into the gaming boom. They were leveraged into auto software coming into auto. And now they've done extremely well over the last couple of quarters selling their AI GPUs. And we expect there's a tailwind and momentum will continue. But we're really focused over the next 10 years on, on finding those winners where that earnings growth will clearly persist. Sorry, to go back to a part of your answer, you, you mentioned hardware being often the start and then you mentioned yes. a, a bit of a timeline from there. So maybe if you could just go, go back there to share with us who are the next likely winners that you and Hyperion think will be in AI and machine learning after hardware? Yeah, sure. So in that hardware space, I should clarify there's some other players emerging to, to challenge NVIDIA as well. So in those GP, GPUs, um, Tesla has its own. Amazon has its own and other players have its own. And, and so, you know, we want these really dominant players. But if we move on from hardware, and as you move on from training the models into inference, there's going to be a lot of compute power needed. There's going to be new workloads created. And this is when the hyperscalers come into use. And those companies are things like Amazon that owns AWS, Microsoft that owns um, Azure, Alphabet that owns, owns Google Cloud. So we believe the next wave of revenue and earnings growth will actually come from the increased usage of these workloads and these services um, in the cloud. And what's actually interesting about um, some of these hyperscalers is the growth rates have been moderating over several quarters as the macro has tightened up. So the growth rates have meaningfully decelerated as small to large customers are actually becoming more frugal and not, and not putting new workloads on. But what we see is we think there'll be an acceleration of revenue and earnings through the cloud as these AI workloads come across. And that's not really in people's numbers over the medium term. And then you've got the application players as well. So you've got your global software as a service players and they're well-placed, whether it's a Microsoft, a Salesforce or a ServiceNow to actually additional tiers to, to their offering. And, and we're actually already seeing that. Uh, Microsoft has done that with their co-pilot. Um, uh, Salesforce has done something similar. And the same with ServiceNow. And so we expect more of that to happen. So these, these software players that have different tiered pricing, different subscriptions, it's not a large leap to, to add another um, AI ML tier. So over the next few years, realestate.com.au, WiseTech, Workday, Palantir, all these software companies born in the cloud have the ability to, to monetize their AI and machine learning capabilities. And again, we don't think this is in people's long-term numbers, so we'll provide some positive optionality. Okay, and if we're really forecasting 10, 20 years into the future, what about AI and machine learning impacting the physical world? Yeah, well, we think that'll ultimately happen, at, you know, potentially from 2025 to, to 2030. And, and we were already seeing the early signs of that. Things like Tesla, as an example, is pushing um, full autonomy in their vehicles. And the smart brains that they've effectively created to mobilize these machines is being put into ro robotics. 
And so Tesla is doing something that no one else in the world is is doing. And and so if you look at a number of companies with vehicles, they tend to use uh, sensors, uh, lidar. Uh, they tend to geofence, do a lot of mapping, and it's really quite expect expensive and, and inflexible. Whereas something like Tesla's effectively got generalized AI because it's got much more miles of data. It's using cameras and it's training its neural nets. So it's got billions of miles of data versus next peer with only tens of millions of data. So you can actually start putting that generalized intelligence into some of these mobile devices, in effect, into cars and into robots. But what's interesting is effectively that means AI and ML workloads start moving from your data centers to the edge or into the hands of the consumers. And this is going to create um, a huge amount of demand and the infrastructure will be need to be set up for that. So something like an ASML, again, like NVIDIA, that's a really good business, but it's um, on our watch list, on our bench, not in our portfolio. If we're right in, in the back end of this decade, then a company like that, which has basically got a monopoly on advanced lithography, will be needed just to create the infrastructure create the chips to effectively use some of this AI, which is now happening at, at the edge. So you can see as you roll through, there's multiple earnings pools that, that could potentially be created through this decade. In your answer, you spoke a fair bit about Tesla and, and I'm keen to speak about Tesla uh, in more detail. But before we do that, there's one company I want to chat about uh, that we I don't think we've we've touched on so far, and that's ServiceNow who have been one of your biggest contributors to your returns over the last 12 months and and also related to the AI thematics. So for those not familiar with ServiceNow, Jason, maybe if you could inform listeners what they do, but importantly, why you like it. Sure. When we think of ServiceNow, it's quite an unusual company. And that's because there's really no tangible, credible competitors. And that's highly unusual for a business that was founded in, in 2004 Nearly 20 years later, it's really hot to identify businesses that, that will challenge them. And that's because it's really moved from a point solution um, to, a, to a platform a solution that's, and it's embedded in, in most organizations, large organizations' workflows. So if you go back to first principles, um, ServiceNow was established by offering a, a product which helped ticket your IT jobs. So effectively, if you had a hardware issue, a bug, in your software, you would email your IT service desk or, or call them up. And what ServiceNow has done is automated at that process. And it's called IT to ITSM or IT uh, service, service management. But when you look at our large organizations in North America, as an example, um, they've got an over 50% uh, market share um, in those organizations with uh, lots of employees. And they've got a line of sight to, to 80%. So again, credibly, unusual that a piece of software can develop like that and have a market share like that. And and why they've dominated ITSM, they've started to expand out of your back office into middle office, into your front office, and really digitize your workflows. So if you onboard a, a staff member, as an example, rather than doing manually, how do you automate that? And how do you automate that through multiple departments, whether that's IT's involved, HR is involved, your C-suites, involved compliances is involved so really having a common portal digitizing and automating workflows is something that ServiceNow um, is doing in a modern way and hasn't been challenged and the reason why we continue to be excited about it particularly with the emergence of AI is when you look at a number of studies look at McKinsey 
um, as an example, the typical knowledge worker would spend 30% of its time checking emails, 20% of their time locating a piece of data or locating a colleague, and 30% of their time away from the desk. So what that means is your, your typical professional is only spending 20% of their time on value-added added products. So clearly, ServiceNow is embedding themselves, and it's just released an AI offering, which is actually at a 60% premium to its ITSM Pro SKU. And so we're, we're quite excited about it, and, and particularly under the current management team that have a track record of success, are highly driven, and really want to continue to win. Oh, fascinating. Now, let's move back to Tesla. As you've mentioned, it's I think it's one of your biggest holdings, but Chinese versions like BYD are doing well in the same space too. So BYD or build your dreams and and put aside the, the fact that I think that's a shocking name for a car company, but, but BYD might not be well known to, to listeners. So Jason, how does the business of Tesla compare to an emerging BYD? We know BYD quite well. Again, it's on our um, bench, on our watch list that so we actively have research templates and financial models on it. We don't own in the portfolio. Tesla continues to remain largest position at between a, a 12 to 13% weight. And Tesla's within auto is a, a pure um, EV play. Um, so when we invest in b- businesses, we tend to want to own those dominant um, businesses and back the number one player. And it's very unusual for us to buy a number two player. We have done that on occasion. In the global fund, we own MasterCard and Visa because we can't differentiate. Domestically, we own both Hub and, and NetWealth again because we can't differentiate. But that's the exception to the rule rather than the general rule. So when we look back and, and think about BYD, uh, we really admire what they've done and we think they'll be successful. But when you look at their business models, they're a broader manufacturing play than Tesla. Within auto, they're actually a broader play than electric vehicles and they have no access or exposure to the rich North American market and they don't have the same full self-driving or autonomy capabilities as Tesla does, although admittedly no one else does either. We think Tesla will win this space over the next 10 years, but we do believe that BYD has the potential to be that second player because when we do look at the pure electric vehicle players, whether that's Rivian, whether that's Lucid, we think potentially they've got threat facing uh, a survivorship crisis because they've got good products, but it's actually really difficult to manufacture and scale these products. And and Tesla went through that um, process. Like it's nearly a miracle um, Tesla survived, but now they're highly profitable, got 1.8 million um, vehicles, or, or that's what they'll broadly do this calendar year on their pathway to, to 10 to 20. And then when you look at the incumbent um, automakers, we think a lot of them will struggle to survive as we look through to 2030. And we've already seen them um, actually starting to sign up and adopt um, Tesla's charging network. We expect something similar will happen to Tesla's full self-driving technology. And within manufacturing, we don't think they've got the capabilities that Tesla has. It's very difficult to see how they move in parallel, automated, modular manufacturing process where most things are insourced like the large incumbents um, have spent decades um, outsourcing a lot of value and, and expertise has been stripped of those businesses so again in that framework we think byd's got the most chance of success outside tesla but um, um our conviction in tesla remains 
on Tesla since you purchased it from memory, I think it was early 2020, maybe perhaps January. It, it's been a great call for Hyperion, but to be fair, it hasn't been smooth. I think it was the final quarter of calendar year 2022, a good example of this. And that's not just specific to um, Tesla, that's uh, uh, across the industry. But Jason, when you invest over a long period of time, returns aren't going to be linear. So how do you and your team handle the ups and downs? And and also, what do you say to clients? Yeah, well, I think post-COVID, the volatility in markets more than doubled. And that's put pressure on, on a lot of market participants, and particularly active managers. And to your point on the back end of calendar 2022, as we moved into December 2022, there was a capitulation in what we would call large cap growth. And Tesla was, was a part of that. And really, interest rates moving vertical at, at the long end really impact a lot of these high growth companies. But when we talk to clients and, and think about Tesla, when the share price goes against you short term, you really need to go back to first principles and, and really take that uh, long-term view and really continue to understand why you think there's um, something special about this business, why the level of in- innovation, why the product um, pipeline, why the earnings potential is um, something that we haven't seen in other listed um, companies before and why we think the earnings um, growth profile is immense on a multi um, on a multi journey. But, but clearly, you need to look at short-term results and explain what's happening and understand what's happening. And the last couple of quarters from Tesla have been relatively soft-first expectations, largely around the gross margin line. And to put that in context, so in the second quarter, 23, Tesla produced a gap gross margin of around 18%. You roll back 15 months, and that same gap gross margin was more like 29%. And, and so that gives you a sense of how volatile earnings can be over short periods. And when we look at Tesla, we think the current business can comfortably support a normalized gross margin of around, around 25%. And so we expect as their factories, including auto and energy scale through this calendar year into next, a lot of that earnings momentum will return. And we think we'll get closer to those normalized margins of 25%. Clearly, Tesla putting up prices significantly through COVID and then pulling them back as the world open up as many of those gross margins above and below the trend line. But what's probably more interesting for us is, well, what's that gross margin going to be, you know, five, 10 years out? And we think it will be well above its lows of 18%, above the midpoint of 25%, and above its recent highs of, of 29%. And the reason is because of software. And it, it's not hard to imagine you know, software can, contributing 80% plus gross margins. So as Tesla continues to develop their full self-driving capabilities, increase their attach rates, move through their beta phase, potentially to a, a autonomy and robo-taxis, you can see huge positive optionality in the gross margins and, and earnings profile um, as we move forward. And then finally, you, you know, we talk to clients and, and the broader market about the importance of portfolio management. And so when we look forward, we think 50% of our excess returns or alpha will be driven by stock selection and 50% will be portfolio management. Um, and what that means is you really need to take advantage of non-fundamental share price moves. So for Tesla as an example, if the share price is being sold off severely, Hyperion is most likely buying. When the share price is moving higher, Hyperion is most likely selling. 
and we want to um, retain Tesla for the next 10 or 20 years, but we want to take advantage of those share prices. And that quarter coming into the back end of 2022 is an, an extreme example. And when you actually look at the number of shares purchased, Hyperion actually increased its position or its underlying holdings by 100% through that period. So we were really buying into that sell down. And, and so that portfolio management is really important. Obviously, stock selection will drive it. But um, if we can uh, be contrarian and take advantage of those share prices and actually be a provider of liquidity in those periods, um, we've effectively found that doubles our um, excess returns over time. Um, before we move on from Tesla, one one final question. I'm a car fan and many listeners likely are too. Are there any traditional automotive companies that you're keeping an, an eye on too and um, what they're doing in the space? Yeah, well, again, our watch list and, and ventures is quite deep and we monitor a number of companies to see if they fight their way into the portfolio. And within there, we've got a business like Ferrari and we have owned that over time. We don't at the moment, but that's clearly an ultra luxury brand at the pinnacle of luxury. It's got a cohort or a customer base that has got an insatiable desire um, for that product. And the order book is, is really strong over the next few years. Like the demand is considerably above their supply. So that's a really high quality business in terms of Ferrari. Um, but we're just monitoring how they transition to electric vehicles over time, which we do believe at some point will inflect and, and combustion engines will be will be off the road. And something like Mercedes is um, something similar and of interest to us because they're on record as, as stating that they will move to electric vehicles by 2030 if the consumer is there. And when you think about the next generation, the aspirational buyer of their first or second car, that's tended to be luxury um, cars like Mercedes. Although when you look at surveys now for your top graduates, it might be a luxury car they aspire to, it, a European luxury car. It might actually be something like a Tesla. But So we visited Mercedes' latest factory. It's only two or three years old in, in Stuttgart in Germany and, and went through that. And what we found is there is a real focus on quality. Quality control is really important to them. But that being said, it requires a lot of manual human intervention. And so there's a lot of humans still involved in their factories. And it means the inspection points before the car leaves the factory is, on our estimates, multiple football fields size. And that's and even most of those Mercedes we saw were black as well. But when you go over and and have a look at um, Tesla's Gigafactory in Berlin, the contrast is, is stark. So the amount um, of robots, the level of automation um, in the Tesla factory is, is, is quite incredible. And what that means is the inspection line at the end is quite small. And rather than two or three football fields, you've got a single line garage, bright light gets um, shone on, on the vehicle and, and you look for any mistakes. But ultimately... It means Tesla can produce cars a lot faster than the Mercedes. So Tesla told us they can produce a Model Y um, out of their Berlin Gigafactory within 10 hours. And when you ask management um, of Mercedes how long it takes to produce their car out of their latest factory, and it's between four and five days. So 10 hours versus four and four to five days is a huge difference, clearly. And when Tesla, you know, can scales up from, you know, one or two million cars to 10 to 20 million cars there's going to be a lot of pressure on some of these incumbent players you mentioned there that you had a recent trip around the world jason so aside from checking out the mercedes factory in stuttgart and the tesla factory i think it was in berlin can you share with listeners 
what else you learned or saw from the, this recent trip around the world? Sure. I mean, you know, Hyperion spent two weeks offshore, probably went through four different time zones. So there's a number of learnings that you get through that and, and it's enjoyable to get those insights. And I think one of the things we did notice is actually some good technology emerging through Europe. And Hyperion historically has found most of our exposure to European listed businesses, whether that's Italy, whether that's France, has tended to be, to be ultra luxury names. So there's a lot of heritage there. There's exclusive, exclusivity there. There's 100 years of creating and developing these brands and, and brands and products. But what we have noticed over time is a lot of the innovation um, was centralized to, to North America. You know, there's pockets in Australia over time, but you didn't have these good um, tech businesses in, in Europe. And, and what we noticed on, on this trip is there's actually some of those businesses merging. And, you know, we understand those business models because we've seen them in North America or, or Australia. So that's quite exciting for us. And, and hopefully, you know, one or two names can and fight their way into the portfolio. We also spent time with Domino's in Europe. And if you look at the portfolio through reporting season, the revenue and earnings per share growth has been really strong and actually well above our expectations, well above levels. But Domino's has been a problem child for us over the last 18 to 24 months, although it's been a big contributor to Hyperion over the last 10 plus years. And the reason was inflation really challenged their business model, which is all high volume, low cost pizza. But the good thing is Netherlands looks like it's been a star performer in their portfolio. And that's important to show the model works elsewhere. Germany as well looks like the, the opportunity is still there for Domino's. There's a large number of independent pizza players. The competitive environment is actually quite benign. And they're clearly the largest pizza chain with scale over there. So we're hopeful with a little bit better execution, with a focus back on a product rollout, a tech roadmap that Domino's can actually build a really large business in Europe. And, and then finally, and maybe this is more to North America, it's just being aware of the difference between the narrative or the storytelling of companies and the actual fundamentals and, and financials. So we think this will become even more important time and just to be um, skeptical and avoid some of those concept stocks. So from here, we think the stocks that lead the market higher or the share prices that drive the market um, higher will really be about those that produce superior earnings per share growth. And there'll be a lot of companies left behind. And, and on our travels, there's a number of businesses that actually look pretty fragile to us that you would do well to avoid. Well, Jason, that was absolutely fascinating. We might wrap it up there in the interest of time. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on. Thanks very much. No worries, Dad. I'm happy to be here. And thanks to all your listeners too. If you're interested in anything discussed in today's podcast, please speak with your Wilson's advisor. And for those not currently a client of Wilson's, you can request a call from a Wilson's advisor through the Wilson's website, wilsonsadvisory.com.au. And a link to Hyperion's website is also available in the episode show notes. My name's Ted Richards, and you've been listening to the Invest at Best podcast. 
This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.